Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Hailed as the godfather of punk rock journalism, Jack Rabbit is the founder, editor, and publisher of New York music magazine The Big Takeover, which celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2020. His writing has appeared in Interview, The Village Voice, Cream, Spin, Paper, Trouser Press, Record Guide, and Music Hound. And he hosts the Big Takeover show on realpunkradio.com every Monday at noon. Over the years, Rabbit has interviewed and profiled artists from Radiohead to The Kinks to The Clash and championed hundreds of up-and-coming artists. He's also a drummer who has played with the bands Leaving Trains, Even Worse, Last Burning Embers, and Springhouse. Rabbit lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Mary, and their children, Jim and Caroline. All right, Jack, well, it's really great to welcome you to The Story Talks Back. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to start out by talking to you about storytelling and storytellers in your past. So do you have any sense about, you know, who were some of the influential storytellers in your own childhood or your sort of formative years or stories that may have really helped shape you um, over the years? Uh, well, obviously, I had some really interesting relatives that came over from Italy. So I would pepper them with questions of what Italy was like, especially in the you know, early 20th century, very different than now. My grandmother would tell me these great stories about how much she hated Mussolini and stuff, even though she had already come here you know, uh -huh. from, from New Jersey. She was hating Mussolini because <laughs> she and I watched the George C. Scott, you know, a teleseries together for some reason. I was staying at their house that week. I heard, I heard all kinds of great stories from those that side of the family because they lived in Summit, New Jersey with us. So we saw them constantly, whereas my mother's family was on the other side of the country. We saw them quite rarely. I think that's where you start with storytelling is in your own family, you know, your own family stories as a small child. And then from there, you start uh, gaining a greater awareness for the wider world and um, politics and, and uh, history. Do you remember any writers or um, books that may have inspired you early on? Uh, Oddly, I was such a baseball nut as a small child that I constantly was gravitating towards books such as The Glory of Their Times, which was nothing but storytelling of what it was like to be a ball player in like 1920 or 1915 or something like that. Mm. And I, even just being a baseball fan, I got a sense of what the world was like back then, just their traveling around in trains and what they were seeing, uh, but it was just what a different world it was before radio and television and, you know, um, what they did for amusements, you know, how they got around all that stuff. And uh, that opened up uh, my interest in just more general subjects as I got older. So between the family stories and the, uh, the recollections of athletes, uh, I was constantly drawn to people's recollections and anecdotes, which as a small child I thought was antidotes. <laughs> Lots of people still do. <laughs> I want to hear some more antidotes. <laughs> I see that all the time. It makes me crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still quite amused at some of the mistakes I used to make back then. Like I thought subtle and subtle were two different words because I was <laughs> I was reading much more than I, my vocabulary was higher than my speaking. That would be good if they were two separate words. It'd be uh, <laughs> yeah, we'd get an extra word. I was always a voracious reader. And so uh, stories were always going to be part of my existence. You know, as a small child, I 
I read, you know, the, the, the entire C.S. Lewis series, even though I had no idea that there were religious allegories. I just liked yeah. the stories, you know, starting in like third grade with the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. And, and when I got into junior high school and high school, I had to read every single Steinbeck novel, having read one. And right now I'm helping my son. He's reading Of Mice and Men for his you know, uh, eighth grade class. I seem wow. to be a good guy to be <laughs> assisting him. <laughs> Who was, do you remember the first person that you, where you were aware that they were a writer, that that was their profession, that, that this was something that could be a profession? It probably was Steinbeck in mm -hmm. part because um, what ended up being my favorite was not even a story. It was a nonfiction book called Travels with Charlie, which I read when I was at Pingree, probably just starting out in 10th grade. Mm. And uh, by then he was quite a successful and experienced author having done it for 30 years. So just the idea that he could get off in this you know, camper van with his dog, travel the country, he said, well, that sounds a lot better than getting up for school every morning. <laughs> <laughs> getting on the bus and going to hillside <laughs> i think i'd like that life please that's funny i mean i'd read so many of his books by then that it, that it was pounded into me what a different life that was i never envisioned that i would be a writer someday it never even crossed my mind but it shows how things can happen organically and then you got uh passionate about music oh well i was always passionate about music it's more that um i was in the beatles fan club when i was six in in summit new jersey so i was in the new jersey chapter uh and i got all this beatles stuff for from 1968 until 1970 when they broke up i, I still have it it's down in my basement wow and i started a scrapbook in 1969 in my little seven-year-old chicken scratch, misspelling all the words. Like I was talking about how I had begged my mom to take me to Shea Stadium when I was four to see the Beatles. No and way. She refused. She said, no, no. Um, she said that there were too many girls scramming, I wrote, because <laughs> I couldn't spell screaming. <laughs> so all those scramming girls, you know, and then I said, I would not she said I would not enjoy it. And I wrote I-N-J-O-Y. <laughs> so I still have this scrapbook. It's kind of like the first issue of The Big Takeover back when I was seven. That's cool. Um, but all, that was it. You know, I just was this massive Beatles fan and I was interested in pop music, but I didn't become completely obsessed by it until punk rock came along in 1977 or so, at least for me. And then I went completely whole hog. You know, it was a natural transition. More, more interested in music than baseball, starting at age 15 or hockey or any other sports I was playing. And what do you think appealed to you about punk rock? What didn't appeal to me about punk rock? <laughs> I, you know, here I am, I'm 50, 59, and I'm still listening to punk rock sometimes because, you know, it's just so exciting. Even like brand new records by brand new bands. I mean, it's, it checks off every single box for me. Um, my parents thought I joined like a cult, you know, they thought they lost me to this, this like Mooney kind of stuff. You know, they, they thought I was like Jim Jones and I was heading to Guiana or something. But to me, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's this very open-ended thing that anybody can be a part of that just makes your life so much better because it, it, uh, it opens up your eyes to so much is going on without making you like dour and po-faced. Um, but it's just great rock and roll music, too. Uh, I was very aware from being a Beatles fan how much of their influence was Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Carl Perkins and Gene Vincent and Elvis Presley and all that stuff. To me, punk was just the late 70s version of that. It was wild, wild music. Whereas a lot of the rock music of that era that was popular with my classmates, I thought was kind of turgid in comparison, <laughs> you know. Not all of it. I, I still like quite a lot of classic rock, but uh, most of it from the 60s and early 70s. Uh, but the lyrics as well, it just kind of returned the idea of rock music as also having a wild streak intellectually, you know, questioning things and uh, 
asking you to like step out of, you know, the comfort zone that you were in where you just had to worry whether you were peer approved. About two years ago, I, I reread an interview I did for the Penguin newspaper in 1980. I, I forgot what it was called. The record. The Penguin record, yes. And they were asking me, I was only 18, so I shouldn't have been very intellectually developed, but they were asking me the same question, like what, what appeals to you here? And I was, I was like, well, you know, in a high school environment in particular, you're so endlessly worried about fitting in and, you know, doing things that other people would say, I like, I like what you're doing instead of saying like, well, what is it that I like to do? What is it that appeals to me? And what, what opinions do I have that other people, you know, aren't going to, to take to, they're not, not going to say, I like that, but it's something that is my conviction. Just be yourself. And uh, I think that's always a good thing strategy at any age when i'm 75 i hope to still be saying like well what is it i like you know uh-huh what is what is you know within my value system and my my interests let me go follow my passions basically whatever wherever they lead me whether it's emil zola and john steinbeck as a kid or you know uh some of the stuff that i'm reading now which could be as benign as a dashiell hammett novel you know or a raymond chandler novel those are, you know, you're, you're talking about storytelling. What great storytelling. What tremendous storytelling. Ross McDonald, I mean, these hard-boiled detective stories, they're so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> such great stories. The writing is ter- terrifically amusing to me, you know, the, the dialogue and stuff and the way people talk. What's, uh, I mean, it seems like punk and sort of the goth thing all have this very dramatic element to them. You know, there's a lot of costumes, um, a lot of, um, you know, personas in a sense. Like when I think of like Johnny Rotten, you know, I mean, that was to me a character that he was playing in a way. Do you, do you see it that way? Or do you think that's just who he is? Both. Probably not the not what people would think, you know. Like Ziggy Stardust was a character of David Bowie, right? So in 1972, he could say like, "This is the last concert I'll ever play," and people thought he meant you know David Bowie. He meant you know the David Bowie Ziggy character, right? By Mars, or so he said later. I, I think the whole thing about Johnny Rotten is it was an exaggerated version of himself, which is within the realm of uh, possibility i think if you look at his lyrics there's absolutely nothing there that's that's fantasy there's nothing there that's made up at all it's a unvarnished and absolutely eye-opening view into what one working class guy from finsbury park was thinking in 1976 that's one of the reasons why the sex pistols are so incredibly vivid to me as they were when i was 16 you didn't get that in popular entertainment in the mid 1970s. It was just gobsmacking, as they say in England. It was just floored me to hear that and go like, you can do that on a record. Mm-hmm. You can, you can sing stuff like that. You know, it's just astonishing. And to think that their record in the UK charts went to number one during the queen's Jubilee week, you know, a, a record called God save the queen, which of course, if Americans don't necessarily know that's the British national anthem. So that was an enormously disrespectful record, but disrespectful with substance, with an actual, you know, um, not just the veneer of thumbing your nose or phony protest. It was, you know, vividly real lyrics and still is. You know, what are you doing with this phony monarchy? What does it mean? Is it just tourists? Is it just, you know, tourist dollars? Right. You know, what, what, what is the actual power in this country? What is, why are people wasting their time with this nonsense? You know, we have bigger fish to fry. The whole trappings of ceremony, basically. It's an interesting question for British people. Of course, we have our own version of that here, don't we? Right. But even, I mean, even punk itself, you know, you could say has, kind of a theater to it and even some some traditions some you know 
ways to do things and ways not to do things? No, it didn't start that way, which is part of the appeal for me, is that uh-huh. you could make it up as you went along. Like the way that I dressed when I'd get into the New York Manhattan thing, because I'd look around at all the other punks and I'd see such a variety of styles and looks and attitudes. I just like, well, I'll come up with my own. So I bought a $3 black jacket, cotton. Wasn't, it wasn't leather. It was cotton <laughs> at a thrift store on St. Mark's Place. And then I went home and I took out some oil paints and just threw oil paint at it like it was like some kind of Jackson Pollock thing. So it just splattered all over it. Uh, and then I bought a bunch of funny but- buttons, you know, like one that had Snoopy on it. <laughs> just anything. And you know, I was having a grand old time, which is the part I think people miss. To the extent that punk had theory in it, well, it was an entertainment. All culture is entertainment. Your favorite novel is entertainment. The best movie you ever saw was entertainment. Right. It wasn't just stayed and boring. You know, it wasn't just people standing there like, well, this is what I have to say. It was music. It was melodic. The songs were tremendous. I, if I was a guitar player, I'd sit down and play you know, acoustic you know, versions and sing very quietly. All my favorite songs by The Clash and The Buzzcocks and uh, you know, The Weirdos and The Avengers and all the bands I was into then, and I still listen to. I think that element can't be missed as well, is that it was ex- not only exceedingly fun intellectually, but it was terrific music. In time, I think uh, people have come to see that more, that it may have been commercially unsuccessful in America, unlike England, but it was actually really exciting, great music that has influenced thousands and thousands of more popular bands since, for want of a better word, popular. But it also seems like the audience was much more a part of the story, in a sense, with punk. Because uh, they were pre, so close. pre slam dancing, yeah. Slam dancing ruined punk rock for me, mm-hmm. not for everyone else. But I, I had a, I always say I had a nice five year, six year run there of unvarnished fun. And then it became more of a nationwide movement, which was fine by me until it became all about, you know, uh, the scene, the slam dancing. The, you know, it became very insular. And to me, that was a gigantic, tremendous missing of the point. To me, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't about itself. And then it became about itself. And that's, to me, a terrible, ridiculous parody. And it became worthless. But And so I just turned my attention to the wider underground music scene, which I'd already respected already and had often bought records of. But the punk rock idea became, as you say, codified. It became uh, standardized, which is exactly the opposite of what it was and what it should be. Exactly. There are things I call punk rock now that have nothing to do with like a codified style. It's just an attitude. But for a while there, the music was part of it too. And it, it was a great clarion call. It was a great Pied Piper. And I was very, very, very pleased to have been part of that because it was such a gas. <laughs> it was just such a tremendous hot foot to be a part of as a teenager and as a college age kid. I feel tremendously lucky that I had friends that insisted I, you know, follow them into this, this world of, of bizarro uh, thought, you know, even just Devo or something like that. They were tremendously intellectually edgy and a mind blowing thing to be reading about at age 16. Their whole you know, constant evolution. Right. It also seems like there was always a kind of synergy or crossover with kind of manga or comic book culture. Like even to me, the Ramones were like for, almost like something out of a comic book that they, they made this story about themselves as the four, the four Ramones, you know, from a family that wasn't really, didn't really exist. Did you, did you, and, and even like R. Crumb, you know, that the kind of synergy with that culture, did you see that? Only in the sense that alternative comic culture was, you know, part of this more gigantic mosaic. Right. There was, I was meeting sculptors, poets, filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch at Max's Kansas City when I was at Pingree. Um, Keith Herring, you know, I met him, uh, the, the graffiti artist. There was the 
filmmaker, um, Richard Kern. There was this like endless art scene. And there were definitely underground comics hanging around there too. All forms of creative expression that weren't just about like selling, you know, a billion dollars catering to the lowest common denominator of mass taste was completely welcome. One of my best friends was a calligrapher, in fact, did the most amazing calligraphy at that time. And other people like my uh, my absolute best friend in the scene in Manhattan was making buttons, you know, handmade, hand-painted badges. Of, so anything you want, you just say like, I would really like a Bad Brains badge and he would produce one for you. And it would be really vivid, vivid orange or vivid red or something. There's this fire engine kind of thing protruding from your lapel. But apart from that, I'd say no, you know, the Ramones, um, you know, they they took their name, for example, I don't know if a lot of people know this, from the punk rock, punk rock name that Paul McCartney used on the first Beatles tour of Scotland when they were totally nobodies. Like yeah. he, he felt, and, and they got it wrong. It wasn't Paul Ramon. It was more, he thought he was like a French name, like Ramon, like Paul Ramon. So they should have been the Ramons. <laughs> That's great. I, I, it's an old joke I say is that Paul McCartney and I have the same problem. Where uh, his his name is actually James, and uh, he decided to use his middle name instead. Whereas my name was Paul, but my parents called me by my middle name. I was never given a choice. I've been Jack since birth, but all of my official records and my driver's license all says Paul on it. So I I changed my last name and for. A, one brief tour, so did Paul McCartney. <laughs> he just decided to change it back, and I never did. So that uh, uh, brings me to the question about your name, because that's not your given last name. Uh, no. Do you? I got, I got into fights with the yearbook page because I wanted them to use my punk rock name in 1980, and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> like, come on, that's not my name anymore. <laughs> that's cool. But I mean, I to say Jack is, Rabbit, I is that um, is that in any way a character to you or a persona? No, again, you know, uh, to an extent you can reinvent yourself. Yeah, right. you can create personas. But my favorite personas are the people that's just you. You know, like I, it can be an exaggerated sense of you, but it's still you and still demonstrably you. That is the best character to play. You know, some, sometimes uh, people will, will do that when they meet somebody like they're interested in dating. They may put on like their best foot forward, but it still should be them. You know, as opposed to an invented character that your dating interest will soon see through and think you're a big giant phony. <laughs> Maybe they should well, it's like the, It's else. like all those dating apps, you know, where people put somebody else's picture on, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, like... <laughs> The funniest one I ever saw of that is uh, this guy was tired of um, the dating classifieds all saying about, you know, how great they were. So he wrote that he was like uh, unemployed and living with his mother and he liked sitting around in his underwear, scratching himself all day and drinking beer and watching television. That was that was his personal ad. <laughs> Did he get any takers? Yeah, he ended up with a six month romance from a girl who called up and said, you clearly have a sense of humor. <laughs> Because you're probably not any of that, right? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> I'm actually employed and I have my own apartment. <laughs> That's funny. But I so mean, that, what, what is, to me is just really funny. But what about the concept of, of Jack Rabbit? I mean, obviously it's a play on rabbit, but what else right. about that name appealed to you? I'm a rabbit fan. Uh, some some of the bands that I've interviewed have even laughed at me, like Howard Devoto, who was the original Buzzcocks founder and went on to magazine. Uh, I, re I remember I was like a, a third of the way through my Buzzcocks interview with him because they had reissued their original recordings. And he just kind of looked at me with this wry eye and said, are all the questions going to be this detailed? <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, you know, I had done so much reading on him naturally, not as a research product project that I was saying, like, well, you know, I remember you being quoted as saying that you had a moment of Satori with a Stooges record. Did that, you know, propel you in motion? 
And then I remember you also saying that, you know, the New York dolls were really, really great, but they didn't completely found the punk rock movement in England. He's just kind of crossing his arms and saying, like, have you read everything I've ever said? <laughs> to me, that was just good interviewing. <laughs> it was a but compliment, it, right? Yeah. And then I got a very good interview out of him because it was the opposite of the guy who reads the bio he's sent or she's sent and asks very generic questions. You know, I made him probe a little bit into stuff that I find really crucially interesting. I mean, this guy was a, a punk rock founder that didn't exist when he started doing it. And he said um, enormously interesting things about it. Like when they founded the band, they didn't know what they wanted to do. They knew what they didn't want to do. Stuff like that is really great storytelling to me because when you're making things up from scratch, sometimes it can be a negative negation. You know, okay, we're not going to make all these mistakes, but now we need to find something that really we really like, what we really want to do. And as the editor of a magazine, I mean, you, you know, are kind of in the position of needing a good story. So you're, you know, it's it's not just. Uh, I mean, can you can you be a successful band without a good story now? Or no. how, how does that work? Music is a story. Uh-huh. One of my favorite interviews I ever did was with Ray Davies of the Kinks. I'm a tremendous Kinks fan, especially up through 72. Sure. And spending an hour with Ray Davies to me was my idea of a, a very nice afternoon. But one of the reasons I admire him is he is a tremendous storyteller. He's like Tom T. Hall, if you're a country fan. He, he has little mini movies in three minutes in a song. Right. So instead of trying, like other interviewers do, to try to stir up some shit between him and uh, his brother Dave, you know, I just, I'm not interested in that garbage. I want to hear what possibly could have inspired him to write Wicked Annabella in 1968, you know? Like one of those orphan songs. Most people know like 10 kink songs or three kink songs or even one kink song, you know? And so they always ask him about those songs, but he's got this catalog of a hundred great songs that I'd like to ask about if they gave me all day. And I remember saying to him in the vein of storytelling, I said, I can't imagine that song's complete fiction. There must be some evil, evil, scary human being that inspired you to write a song about Wicked Annabella. And he said, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I said, well, who was it? She says, I dated this girl for a while. Her mother was so scary. Even the postman didn't want to deliver her mail. <laughs> I just framed the song in a completely new light for me. <laughs> so now I imagine this, this girl's mother <laughs> just scared away the postman like a like a dog or something you know like a beware of dog sign beware of, beware of dating mother sounds like a monty python skit or something it could be and you know i was watching monty python tremendously when i was at pingree with that style of humor it was just unbelievable the ruddles movie might be my favorite you know um mockumentary of all what a great idea make fun of the beatles my, my childhood obsession for an hour and a half right? <laughs> and have George Harrison appear in it <laughs> as, a, as a BBC reporter. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious brilliant. though about the actual, like the bands themselves, like having stories. It seems like, um, you know, this with, with social media now, you always have to be putting out things about yourself, you know, and, and be interesting yourself uh as a commodity um do or you not feel that that's changed over the years or or not you know you can decide you're a commodity or you can just share pictures of your children doing funny things or you're a cat you know if you have no children or whatever but if what you're putting out is edifying and amusing or thought-provoking then you're a content provider of course the trouble is when you get rid of the gatekeepers like editors and uh, publications and things like that and you're asking everyone to self-edit and not everyone's great at it so uh social media ends up being a um, double-edged sword of the worst most exaggerated kind 
you have people who whose pages are full of either fun or information or you know thought-provoking ideas or or hilarious memes or whatever and then you have other people they're just spreading you know, either boredom or poison both of which are poisoning endless stupid cat fights and things like that right and misinformation which is a cancer absolute cancer what do you think i mean how do you know when you have a good story for the magazine what what's sort of your what are your criteria or what's the essence of a good story to you well if it interests me it's likely going to interest someone else my my tastes are not so eclectic uh, at least me, uh, you know, my favorite movies were were often well-selling, you know, like The Third Man, I think is an absolute masterpiece. Casablanca sold uh, movie tickets, you know, <laughs> apparently well, well-liked well at the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have nothing against popular entertainment. It just has to be, you know, interesting. It has to be really funny or it has to be really profound or really um, interesting in a way that like, wow, that's unusual. I read a ton of Chekhov, again, as a high school guy, and uh, I would read the backstories. I wouldn't just read the story. I would read the introduction of what led Chekhov to write that short story. And inevitably, it would be a story that some doctor told him or was in the newspaper in, in you know, uh, St. Petersburg or whatever. Uh, that's how you get to be a great writer like Chekhov is you, you don't necessarily have to invent stories out of whole cloth. The universe produces stories at a frightening rate every day. Even some of the dumb things that people magazine is excited about this week. One or two of them will be actually fascinating story of general interest as opposed to just flotsam and jetsam. But it seems like we're also, you know, seeing the dark side of this, sharing your personal story uh, um, movement in the sense of all the, the things that are coming out about people that are not flattering and, and ruining their careers in a sense. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Johnny Rotten. Right. I had a great interview with him 20 years ago, and I have nothing but admiration for him. But recently, some of the things that he's done and said, I didn't really respect as much. People are very complicated and they're very um, complex. They're not all one thing. One of the things I've been fighting against for 45 years is oversimplification. The idea that things have to be simplified for us, for us to have an understanding of them. Whereas that's not the way the world works. You know, Martin Luther King had flaws. Abraham Lincoln had flaws. There's no, you know, ivory tower for anything. And likewise, sometimes we undercount some of the greatness of some people, even great people. They had other aspects about them that we've, perhaps undervalued in this day and age, you know, everybody's just, you know, shouting in a way. I think social media is just a great big shout. And that is the antithesis of intellectualism. Like if I talked over all your questions, which is something I, I, I might do by accident from pure enthusiasm, <laughs> then we're not having a discussion. I'm lecturing you. I might as well be Mr. Bohinsky in chemistry or something like that. You know, <laughs> get out your pens, <laughs> write this down. You know, the whole idea is life is kind of a dialogue and social media is at its best when it's offering you something and you can, you can comment and perhaps enhance the discussion, but that's not the way it works in practice for too many people. And, and on the informational end, it's spreading poison. Let's, let's be clear. Misinformation is a cancer. Things that are not true that are being disseminated at a gigantic speed and a tremendous replication is the death knell for, you know, the age of enlightenment. It's a paradox, really. You know, Gutenberg's in, uh, invention was the great catalyst. I mean, here, I say that in the publishing industry, so it sounds, you know, self-referencing, self, uh, but no, I, that is how we we're able to spread information and science and learning and experience to people on a mass scale. And now we have reached the, the uh, apex 
where we can have access to information. I mean, we had a 27 volume Encyclopedia Britannica behind me while I was listening to my punk rock records in Summit. So if I needed to look up something, I'd turn, you know, thumb through the page and see if there was something. But now we have access to anything. Like uh, if my daughter gets sick, I can look up, you know, the symptoms. <laughs> That's just brilliant. That's really helpful. It's a pity then that, you know, it's the same thing that dispenses that very helpful uh, medical advice, for example, will will tell people like not to get a vaccine or something. Right. And people will and people will die. It's life and death. People are dying because of misinformation will continue to die even apart from the vaccine thing on other things, because they they will choose to believe something they'd like to be true rather than something that is true. They're, they're letting their emotions rule over their reason, the opposite of the age of enlightenment. Have you ever, um, have you ever stopped listening to an artist because you found out something about them that disturbed you? No, but it, I'm human like anyone else. I might listen to them less. The Smiths were a gigantic favorite of mine in the 80s, and I've almost never listened to them now. And when I do, I think, wow, they used to be so great. I can see why the other three quit. <laughs> so I, mean, I make a joke out of it in a bit. I can see why a band that was still so incredible broke up at you know the absolute top of their game. And it seemed like such a mystery at the time. But people are really obsessing over this get back thing for the Beatles. I knew almost all of that. It's And I've seen it in my own bands that I've played in. It's very difficult to be a collaborative enterprise for years on years, especially more than like a duo. And even a duo is hard. Ask the Everly brothers. They despised each other and they were brothers. Right, right. Uh, the Simon and Garfunkel, they keep coming back and then they're like, oh yeah, I do hate you. And then exactly. 10 years later, was, like, it's my childhood friend Artie. I was talking about friend, this Artie. someone the other day. My, yeah. Yeah. So when you're doing a trio or a quartet or a quintet, there's all the more difficulty to keep the right people together but of course the best collaborative enterprises are the ones where each of them contribute equally you change one member of the beatles it's not the beatles anymore it still might be a very good group but it took all four of their energies you know put in together and and bouncing off each other's ideas and and contributing what each could uniquely contribute and that's not just true in the field of music there's a reason why people tend to work with the same teams over and over in other creative fields. If the same director will keep working with the same cinematographer, you know, the two of them probably collaborate more than a lot of people would imagine because you have to actually frame the shot. They might ask his, his or her ideas. It seems like, you know, like the whole idea of the big takeover, that name for your magazine, um, you know, it, it implies uh, kind of subverting power um, or making fun of power. Uh, how much? How much does operating outside of the mainstream still mean to you? How how important is that? Only to the extent that the mainstream is doing a bad job. I don't think there would have been much of a need for a publication like mine in the sixties. And I don't say that as nostalgia for my own youth, because I was apart from the Beatles, I didn't know anything about a lot of the music I was hearing. I knew the songs, but didn't always know the artist. You know, like that song's by the Mamas and the Papas. That one is by the Turtles. That one is by the Animals. You know, songs I still love to this day, because you're 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 in elementary school. But if you look at like the chart, I, I saw a top 100 from the Corvettes ad recently because I used to buy my records at Corvettes at the Blue Star Shopping Mall in Scotch Plains. Oh, man. And, and like <laughs> of the 100 top songs of that moment, just any given week in like 1967, I think I liked like 98 of them. Even looking back at it now, I think Engelbert Humperdinck was the only one I didn't like or something like that. <laughs> it was like, no, I draw the line at Engelbert Humperdinck. But, uh, you know, there were a lot of underground records that could have sold in the 60s that didn't, but there were tons of incredible 
records that did. Um, not just the Beatles, but and the Rolling Stones, but even some of the records that were just like Motown records or or the um, records coming out on the Stax label. These records were selling. There wasn't any need for the big takeover. When popular culture is doing its job, it is in fact the most creative and most human art that's uh, making the biggest impact. My proviso is that somewhere in the early 70s, the record companies got drunk on profit and made this slow descent into uh, you know, mass entertainment culture, which also ruined the movies too. I mean, look at the movies now, what are they? This is something that's been going on for decades, is this slow descent. I think about 20 years ago, I went by a cineplex that was showing eight movies and I noticed that seven of them were not introducing new characters. It was like Die Hard 3, The Flintstones. <laughs> like what? We just have babied everyone so badly that we can't just come up with a new story with new concepts. And also uh, another time I went by a cineplex and I noticed that something like five out of seven movies broke the laws of physics because we can't just have a common story about common people doing normal things. We have to give them superpowers or allow them to do things, you know, that, that um, mankind so far in terms of its abilities cannot do. It just became fantasy-based, basically. Nothing against science fiction or, or fantasy, but it shouldn't be that predominant. And as a result, the need for publications of mine arise because there is always some intelligent people who just want to say like, no, I don't want that. I want something more interesting. My, my wife and I watched The Godfather last night. There's nothing in that movie that, uh, that requires anybody to fly to the planet Xenon or something like that, you know? And it isn't like, you know, uh, um, characters that had been introduced before. It's real life. It was real life for a lot of people. You talk about family storytellings. The one that my grandmother told me a hundred times is when uh, the black hand came into my grandfather's office in Summit, New Jersey, put a gun to their baby's head. My my dad's older sister, he hadn't been born yet. So my aunt, my aunt, aunt Allison said, you need to pay protection money for your business or you know, the baby gets it. This is like 1922 or something like that in New Jersey. And my grandparents being Northern Italians, they were like, we don't have this problem back there. That's a Southern Italian problem was their view in the 1920s for good or for bad. So they, they went, got on the next boat and went back to, to Northern Italy to get away from the gangsters. So when I see The Godfather, it's not just a story about you know, the mafia. The Black Hand was the precursor to the mafia in New Jersey. To me, it's you know, real life as I was told from infanthood. Uh, my my grandparents stayed in Italy for several years until they found out that the gangsters had been murdered and then came back to the summit. And my grandmother didn't want to move back into their house on Ashwood Avenue. They stayed with relatives a half mile down the road because she was scared. These things have a profound effect on people. Stories are, are not just stories. They're exactly how we order our lives. The Native American tradition of, you know, not writing things down, but passing the stories down generations. That's very powerful. It's, it's what makes us us. It's, it's our identity. I'm sure it had a profound effect on my dad, for example, you know, being born a few years later in Summit. In, in the same house. That's, that's really fascinating. Um... So I, I had to pretend about seven times too that I'd never heard it as well. What happened next, Grandma? <laughs> really? That a gun? <laughs> she was like eighty-seven. I was still hearing it. I I never stopped her. Tell me it again. It's like this, like of mice and men. Tell me that story again, George, about the rabbits and how we're going to tend our own farm. Stories are very powerful to people. Whether, whether a dream of what you would rather have in the future or what's come in the past. What, um, do you have any sense about how your kids' tastes and story are different from yours or what they, what they value in stories? My dad was a good storyteller and had a very wry sense of humor. 
So I don't tell my kids stories about gangsters and, you know, the black hand. I tell them Ryan funny things my dad said and uh, stories my dad used to tell about me as well. Because I have a, a well, I'll say this about myself. I have a very good memory or, or I used to. And so I remember quite in great detail <laughs> things I've read or things that I've experienced. You know, I can still remember like uh, street hockey games that I played behind the Summit YMCA in 1978 and like the near miss that would have tied a game. Why do I remember that? Because it meant a lot to me when I was 16 that I wanted to win that game and that I was part of a great team of friends and we all wanted to do that together. So much of what happens to me that I value the most are things I do with other people. It's the absolute warp and woof of humanity is that I'm part of something bigger than me. The magazine to me is the same thing. But uh, my children, getting back to your question, are inevitably going to be influenced by me and my wife's sense of storytelling. And it's, it's pretty deep. We like telling stories. We like telling jokes. We like remembering things that we saw you know, that happen to people as evidence of experience. Experience is how we get to being who we are and avoid hopefully pitfalls and pratfalls and hopefully arrive at a better way of doing things or an easier way of doing things or, or something that keeps us out of trouble. Um, my favorite story for Jim is uh, um, about his, his grandfather because he never met him. My dad was dead before my kids were born, so they only exist as stories. I read this about Native Americans that they don't think you're dead really until everyone who knew you was dead as well. <laughs> it's like this like second state. Right, right. No, I mean, I've been thinking about that in terms of my dad because he passed away last year. And, uh, you know, I kept trying to come to terms with the fact that he's not around anymore. And then I finally just sort of relaxed into the idea that he's still it's fine that he's still here in my head you know and and in everything that's that's going on with the people who knew him so he is still here you know there's no need to think that he's not here anymore as long as you exist to tell you know stories that give a flavor of what the man was like and what um a good influence that he had or even just funny things that he did one of my dad's favorite stories, he was teaching his first cousin to drive and they came up to Route 22, probably Scotch Plains. And he said, take a left, Arnie. And Arnie didn't go across the divider into the next set of lanes. He just took a left into the, into the traffic is coming right at him. So my dad said he yanked the wheel, just reached over. He didn't say anything, he just reached over, yanked the wheel so that they went over the divider. <laughs> And then got into the right lanes, and he just said, "I meant around the divider." <laughs> oh my God, I'm on I'm on Route 22 almost every day, and I can just so you can just that imagine like. that would have been 1946, probably, because <laughs> my dad was born in 1929, like 1947, 1948. Him teaching his first cousin how to drive. <laughs> Nothing's changed, right? Uh, do you know who Richard Castellanitz is? Name sounds familiar, but no. So he's a independent publisher and writer, and, and he started talking about Route 22 when I interviewed him. <laughs> Just randomly, oh. he said, "Oh, I I married someone in Plainfield, and and I used to take Route 22 to get to her house." You know, apart from local interest for people like us who grew up near it, on a more, um, um, I guess. Uh, rounded interest level to someone who's never been there, it, it evokes how difficult it was to deal with uh, traffic that was designed for the 1920s. And when cars were smaller and there were less of them and they went less fast, you ended up with this old infrastructure that became quite dangerous in the modern world when we were driving it. It's probably even more dangerous now, you know, apart yeah. from my dad's stories. And that's probably partly why I remember it, apart from the fact that, wow, that must have been a crazy moment in your life there, Dad, and my Uncle Arnie's. Now they're both dead, so it only exists in my remembering the story he told me that happened 15 years before I was born. 
Crazy. Storytelling is just, you know, permanent that way. And it's great. It's wonderful that I remember that story. If I forget it and I don't tell it to other people, it stops existing. And now we're back to Gutenberg. People write down their stories and publish them. You know, I, as a child, I devoured biographies of like Abraham Lincoln and uh, Thomas Edison because I used to keep going to that Edison Museum in West Orange. That guy was dead before I was born. But, you know, I knew how he had hurt his ear, you know, uh, being pulled onto the train in Ohio. Some some guy was like trying to keep him from missing the train after he sold his newspapers. I still remember that. I read that in like 1971, the age of nine. Because what a great story. Right. Here's this kid, you know, with his like entire laboratory in the caboose, <laughs> blowing up the caboose. He actually blew up the caboose by accident, Thomas Edison. When you're nine, you're like, cool. <laughs> That's rad, man. That's great. He blew up the caboose. But he's Thomas Edison now, so it's okay. It was all in the service of something, you know. And that 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 uh, record player I played when I got home, you know, was because of him and his team of scientists. Uh, the Beatles, in a way, you know, with one guy taking all the credit. <laughs> exactly. It was the Beatles of inventions in 1881 and 1882 and 1883, having this team team of scientific minds giving us the electric light and and the phonograph. Tremendous. I always say this, all music was live until 1881. If you had a million seller in 1870, it meant you sold a million copies of your sheet music, like Stephen Foster or something like that. So we went from... Uh, a million different versions of Swanee River as being the only versions to one version, you know, of the new hit record. And nobody, nobody plays it at their houses anymore because all music had to be live until the phonograph was invented. So good and bad there, Thomas Edison in New Jersey, right, right near us in Menlo Park. It's been great to talk to you, Jack. Oh, it's always fun talking to you, Dave. Really appreciate your time and and uh, great stories, great insights. So, well, I hope. Uh, really you, like it. I said, it, the desire to entertain is always going to be part of storytelling or interviewing. I'm looking for stories when I interview other people. You know what what has shaped you know your songs, your art, your existence that made you want to be part of this, and that made you want to express yourself. Thanks for sharing your story, Jack. Really appreciate well, it. Well, good luck with your, your uh, program, too. Thank you. It's good that you share your, your uh, investigations, too. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.